2 Corinthians 12, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On such, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I didn't Excuse me, that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, Slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid 
that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. Amen. Well, this morning, our sermon is entitled Glorious Revelations and Humbling Torments. Glorious Revelations and Humbling Torments. I'm probably going to have two points this morning. The first is we're going to look at those glorious revelations, the visions of the Apostle Paul given to him by God. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the thorn in the flesh that was given also to Paul. Paul received two things. He received a superior vision, revelation, of the glory of God in heaven. And he also received what he calls the thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. We talk about those two things and how they apply uh, for us today. Now, remember what Paul is trying to do. He's defending himself. He's boasting in his ministry, so to speak, even though he doesn't like to do that, boys and girls. He, he doesn't like boasting in himself. But here's what he's doing. The reason he's doing it, he wouldn't have done it at all, except that there were people coming to the Corinthians and they were boasting that they were apostles and that they had the truth and that they had special revelations from God and that they should be listened to. And that the Corinthians, these apostles were saying, these false apostles were saying they should reject Paul. So Paul is saying, look, you guys say you're true apostles and I'm saying you're not. I'm saying that I am a true apostle. Well, you guys boast in your visions, in your revelations, supposedly, that you receive in your teaching. Let's do a little boasting on my part. And so that's what he's doing. He's entering into their foolishness, if you will, to answer the fool according to his folly and showing them the folly of what these false apostles are saying. So let's look at our text here. If you look at verse one, you see that boasting is necessary, he says, though it is not profitable. So he he recognizes this is not something he would ordinarily do. He's doing this because of an extraordinary pastoral situation. However, he says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So you guys want to talk about the, the special revelation you're receiving directly from God? Let me tell you. Really what God is doing and revealing. And notice here his reluctance to to even boast about himself. In verse 2, you'll note that the personal pronoun becomes the third person. Paul speaks of himself in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ. Now, who is that man, boys and girls? Well, that man is himself. And so he's, he's kind of like saying, I know this guy, Boyd Miller, you know, who... And, and he's speaking like that. And, or you might say, you know, I know this and, you know, you, you use your name. And that's what Paul's doing. He's kind of distancing himself from this boasting. You can see his reluctance to boast uh, of himself. He doesn't say, well, I got this great vision from God. I got this great revelation from the Lord. But he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, which would have been before the first missionary journey that Paul undertook, So in preparation for that first missionary journey, he receives a special revelation from God. Now, in verse two, and he repeats it in verse three, you'll note that he says, whether in the body, I do not know or out of the body. Now, he's talking about he doesn't really understand the nature or the state of his being in which he received this revelation. The revelation was overwhelmingly glorious and he doesn't 
in the midst of that glory, he doesn't know whether he himself, like Elijah and Elisha, Elijah was transported into glory or whether it was a rapture of the soul that God communicated this new revelation to him by way of soul that his soul was taken up into heaven. And he says, I don't really know. There was mystery surrounding this revelation, but he knew it was from God. And he said as he was caught up into the third heaven. Now, the third heaven is not so much a degree of heaven, but it is a way that the Bible often speaks about describing heaven itself. That is, the cosmos was often pictured in the Bible as the atmosphere that we know of here as the first heavens, you know, kind of where the clouds float, right? <clears throat> and then the second heaven would be where the, what we would call the space or the universe Galaxies, stars. And then the third heaven is heaven. Glory itself. Paradise. When Jesus said to the thieves on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise, Jesus was speaking about the third heaven here. So I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's not speaking about various degrees so much in the place of heaven, but he is when he uses that expression, third heaven, he is speaking about heaven. Okay? So he says basically here, I was caught up to heaven. Just like the Apostle John in Book of Revelation was caught up into heaven and saw a vision of heaven. You can read chapter 4 in Revelation. Read chapter 5 and you get those glorious scenes of the throne room. The great white throne and the crystal sea before it. And the emerald rainbow that goes around it. And the strange seraphim with six wings and cherubim that hover uh, around the throne and they cover their eyes with two of their wings and they cover their creatureliness with two wings and they cover uh, and with the other pair of wings they fly and they praise God unceasingly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the elders are prostrating themselves before the throne and the martyrs are under the altar crying out, how long, O God, how long? And and the songs of the saints who have died and have gone to be with the Lord in Jesus Christ are praising God. Glory, power, honor and dominion be yours and to the Lamb of God who was slain. All that's taking place. And John saw that and, and revealed that to us. And here what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he also was given this vision. Now let me tell you something interesting. And I think that demonstrates something that sets Paul apart from a lot of these guys on TV who are claiming that they too have been transported to heaven or that Jesus has come to their, the foot of their bed at night or things like that. Let me tell you something about that. And that is this. Paul was reluctant to tell people about this revelation. He did not want to have to tell them. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Acts, you never, ever, ever see Paul talking about this revelation experience. And yet three times he talks about his conversion to Christ. You ever thought about that? I don't think I did until I started studying this chapter. You never hear Paul from his own lips in the book of Acts saying, listen to me, everybody, because I was caught up to the third heaven. And I received this special revelation from God. No, what does he talk about? He talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to him while he was rebelling against God 
on the road to Damascus. I think what Paul is saying is what's more significant and more important for the edification of the church is the gospel. It's the repentance from sin and the belief and, and, and the believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what is most important. That's what Paul wants to communicate, whether it's King Agrippa or whether it's the multitudes in, in Jerusalem that he's preaching to from the top of the stairs after he's been arrested. Each time that Paul has an opportunity to share something of Jesus Christ, he shares his testimony. And I think that should inform us a little bit about the importance of the grace of God in our lives. When you have opportunities to share uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to share what the Lord has done in your life. Now, I say that because if you're like me and you've turned on various religious channels, and I don't have cable anymore, so I don't see this as often as I used to, but I, I was at my parents. Um, oh, it was when I was sick. I'm sick again. Six weeks ago, I, I was sick enough that I didn't come here. And I was at my parents. And I remember uh, Sunday afternoon, they've got satellite TV. And I did not realize how many religious stations there are on satellite TV. But, um, and, I, and you can go on YouTube, too, if you, even if you don't have cable or satellite. You, you watch some of these guys on YouTube uh, boasting about these incredible experiences and revelations that they have received. They believe... Some of them believe that they, too, are apostles for today. And therefore, they receive these revelations from God. And they share these revelations with people. I watched a man on YouTube a couple years ago because some of the college students were getting into this figure down in Florida. I was a little concerned about this guy and started to do some investigating on my, on, on my own. And the more I watched, the more concerned I got about this guy and he was regularly talking about revelations that he had. He talked about this time he was in a hotel and was praying and how fire from heaven came down and burned up uh, everything that was like above his, above his room in the hotel and, and below it. And I said, you know, I'd like to see documentation on that and, and other stuff. Later, this guy, you know, was found out to be in, a, in an adulterous affair uh, and was later exposed for the charlatan that he was. But nevertheless, he was claiming these great visions and uh, personal things that he saw in heaven. And he would teach on those things as though it was another part of the Bible that was to be given. A part of the canon that should be added after Revelation. And, and, uh, and you, you have people who do that. You have people who claim to be apostles uh, today. I, I can't imagine um, either the ignorance or the chutzpah to, to call myself a, an apostle when you, when you know what an apostle really was. What, who, the apostles were the foundation of the church. They were people who had been personally called by God, by Jesus Christ, who walked with Jesus Christ, who saw Jesus' ministry. I mean, even Matthias, who replaced Judas, still had to meet those qualifications. They said, the apostles said, it had to be somebody who was with us from the beginning. Now you say, well, what about Paul? And that's what these false apostles were saying. They were saying, he's not with this group from the beginning. Well, this is why Paul says he was an apostle untimely born. That though he was called later, he, he did meet the qualifications that he was personally met by Jesus Christ. Christ 
appeared to him on the road to Damascus as he was going to Damascus to arrest Christians. And Paul fell off his high horse, so to speak. And as he's on the ground, he says, Lord, who art thou? And he says, I am Jesus. Why do you persecute me? So Jesus personally appeared to the apostle, Paul, in a vision and called him not only to repentance and faith in Christ, but also to be an apostle. One who was untimely born. One who did not walk with Jesus in his earthly ministry. But yet after that, that was it. He was the last apostle to be called by Jesus. They are the foundation of the church. Now, if you look at redemptive history, we are well beyond the foundation. It's been 2,000 years since Christ, the cornerstone, and the apostles, the foundation of the church, have been laid. We are well into the scaffolding and the structure of the church being built. And so I believe it is the teaching of the Bible that the office of apostle has long been closed. But yet, so that you know, there are ministers out there who do claim that they are genuine apostles. I think they either have a misunderstanding of the term or they have a very high view of themselves and their ministry. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that the, the apostles of the church are the foundation. The prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church and the imagery of God is building his church. Jesus is building his new covenant temple. The foundation has already been laid in the prophets and the apostles. And we've, we've moved on. So beware, uh, kids, when you watch TV and preaching, you know, and somebody says they're an apostle, you say, well, wait a minute now. Pastor Boyd told me from the Bible that uh, Paul was the last apostle who was called. And that, that's what Paul is saying here, that he was one untimely born. But yet, even as an apostle, isn't it interesting that he won't boast in these revelations? It's, it's as if these false apostles have forced his hand. Because you won't find this in any other of Paul's writings. Because he had no need to write about it. Now, if you look at what it says in verse 4, he says he was caught up into paradise and he heard inexpressible words. Now, that does not mean that these words were incomprehensible. These words that he are inexpressible, meaning that he could not or was not permitted to speak what had been spoken to him in heaven. And this would not be the only time that that happened. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the apostle John heard things in heaven and was about to write them in his book. And an angel of the Lord had to come to him and say, don't write that. Because God is not going to reveal that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, the things that are in the Bible, are revealed for us and our children. So God has not revealed everything to us about himself. There are some things, many things, that God has withheld from us. Things that we will learn about in heaven. Things that we will come to know when we see Christ face to face. So Paul was not permitted to speak of these things and he was faithful to that command and did not tell us what it was he actually heard in heaven. 
Now, again, he's reluctant to boast, unlike our modern evangelists and our modern apostles who are quick to boast about the things they've heard, so-called, from God in heaven. Paul has that reluctance. But he says, verse 5, On behalf of such a man I will boast, speaking about himself, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. For I do not wish to boast, for I do, excuse me, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth But if I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, let me give you a couple applications here uh, from this first part about the visions and the revelation. Number one, I think, nevertheless, we can learn several things. One, this passage is a good reminder, even though we don't know the content of what was spoken to Paul. This is a good reminder that our own thoughts need to be heavenly, that Heaven is a world of glory, a world of splendor, a world of beauty, a world of holiness. It's a world of sinlessness. It's, it's a world of incredible human dignity where man is as he was supposed to be. And he's even better than he was created in the garden because he is completely sanctified in Christ Jesus. And this world of glory is the world that is really our home. It's the world to which we are going. It's the world to which we should strive and aim. And therefore, Paul tells us elsewhere that we should not be earthly minded in our thinking, but heavenly minded. Let your thoughts dwell. Where? Boys and girls. On the things above. The things of Jesus. The things of your Savior. Your Savior is in heaven. Your Savior is in glory. And your Savior is sanctifying you for that world that is to come. I think it's interesting that, and I think it's safe to say that a sanctified imagination, I think there is such a thing as using your imagination in a sanctified way, a sanctified imagination cannot conceive of the glory that awaits us. Try as hard as you might to imagine the the glory to which you are going in Jesus Christ if you are a Christian here this day. And it is difficult to comprehend or even apprehend how glorious, how beautiful, how good, how holy, how just this world is. Jonathan Edwards called it a world of love. It's a world of of pure, infinite, holy pleasure where we drink all that we can of the glory and the being and the wonders of, of God and of Christ and yet we find ourselves still obsessed with wanting more of God, hungering and thirsting After him all the more. I think secondly. As we contemplate the vision of Paul. It should remind us. And shame us. Of our earthly mindedness. And petty obsessions. We should also be reminded. Of our own shortcomings. We should be grieved. At how often. We find ourselves. Preoccupied with the world. That is. I think it was one of the Puritans used to say that our mind should return to heaven as a bird does to her nest. Her nest is her home. That is where she dwells. That's where she raises her young. She does leave that nest to go get things, food or maybe more shelter for her nest. But she always keeps coming back to the nest. And so the Puritans used to say, so should the Christian in his thinking. 
that heaven is our home and our thoughts should always be on heaven as our nest. But yet we do have a calling in this world and we are to go into this world and to do our jobs, to do our homework, to do our school, to participate in culture. But as we participate in these activities here in this world, in this life, we keep coming back to what is our home in glory. We keep coming back again. And we ought to be grieved to some extent when you go three, four, five hours and you realize, wow, I haven't thought anything about Christ. I haven't thought anything about heaven. I spent half this day and I didn't think about Jesus. I think if we can capture something of what the Bible pictures here and in Revelation about the glory of heaven, it'll help train us to become more heavenly minded. Number three, the glory of heaven reminds us how holy our God is. The glory of heaven reminds us of the holiness of God, why we should pursue sanctification. R.C. Sproul believes that it is the holiness of God is that attribute which needs to be reemphasized in our day again. You could argue is whether that is the one attribute that really needs to be emphasized or not. I won't take up that argument now, but nevertheless, I think Dr. Sproul is right that it is an attribute of God that must be emphasized in the church, that God is holy. Some theologians have said God is holy, other, infinitely holy, wondrously holy. This is why the Bible repeats it in Isaiah 6 three times. Holy, 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 one, two, three times, because that was a way of emphasis. It's like we use the word very holy or extremely, greatly, these various adverbs that we use. They would just simply repeat the the word again and again and again. For example, Jesus would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, meaning this is really important. I need you to listen at this moment. And so he'd say, verily, verily. And, and so when God describes himself as holy, 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 he is describing himself as infinitely holy. And the church needs to recapture that sense of the holiness of God. Give people a sense of holiness when they come in and worship here. That we should recognize we worship a God who is holy, righteous. He is a consuming fire. And then finally, we need to be careful about those who are making boasts that Paul was making here. Again, as I repeated earlier, you know, Paul was reluctant to even have to bring up this boast, but he did for the sake of the unity of the church. But it seems that many people on TV especially don't seem to have that reluctance, but are quick to speak of their own experiences and even make them up. So those are the visions in the Revelation. But secondly, there was something else given to him that I want to focus on. And that's found in verses 7 through 10. And that is the thorn in the flesh. Isn't it interesting to see the, the weakness of even a sanctified man like the Apostle Paul. That the, the vision is so glorious and so wondrous that it cannot just simply be given without something to keep his flesh, his sin nature in check. Lest he actually begin to boast in himself. It says something about our inability as sinners to handle glory. 
And so Paul tells us here in verse seven, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Boys and girls, he's saying, because what God showed me was so great, so wonderful, so magnificent. He said, to, he said, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, that is basically to keep me from pride, to keep me from self-righteousness, to keep me from lapsing into Pharisaism. And boasting in myself and counting myself righteous because why else would God give me this revelation? I must be something special within myself. He says to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me from allowing my sin nature to get the better of me because of this revelation. He said there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now you can read commentary after commentary after commentary and you can get all kinds of interesting speculations as to what this thorn in the flesh might be. Some say that it was opposition. Uh, you do notice there it is called a messenger of Satan to torment me. So some say it was it was opposition to Paul in his ministry. Satan stirring up the Jews and the Gentiles against him and persecuting him. <coughs> Others think that maybe it was a physical affliction. Paul seemed to have some eyesight problems. Uh, you know, and, and you get that sense when he says, says to the churches, see with, with, with which large letters I write. Some suggest that his eyesight was so poor, he, he had to write with very large letters to see what he, he was writing. And we don't know. You can, uh, can go through a list of all kinds of physical maladies. Now, I have a friend with a smile likes to say that he knows that this is about kidney stones. <laughs> the thorn in the flesh is kidney stones. And, those of you who have had kidney stones, I see you nodding. Uh, <laughs> we don't know what it was, boys and girls, but it was something painful. Something where he felt at the end of himself <coughs> and where he, he felt a great weakness. Whatever it was, it was causing him a great sense of weakness. Whether physically or spiritually, he was on his face before God. It was something awful. It was it was something very painful. You can imagine what it is to get a thorn. If you've ever any of you have uh, stepped on a thorn bush. My mom used to plant thorn bushes, rose bushes, rather out in the backyard. And, uh, you know, in the summer and you're barefoot and you're going in there to get the ball that has gone in there. It's an awful experience. Uh, to step on one of those things. You step in the wrong place um, and it's quite painful. So, whatever it was, it was, it was something to keep him humble. And, you know, Paul knew something of the virtue of humility to begin with. So this shows you, the, I think, both the greatness of the revelation and the mercy of God in, in keeping Paul from himself. But here, let me say a few things by way of application. I think, number one, this is important. A lot of the church needs to hear this today. And that is, we see here a, a, something of a theology of suffering again. Now, this is the same apostle. Remember, he's an apostle. And we're going to talk down further, verse 12, about the true signs of an apostle were performed. What were some of those true signs? Some of those true signs was the apostle Paul laying his hands on the sick. And they were healed. 
Like when they washed up on that island in the Mediterranean. And the, and the chief, the head honcho, is, is sick. And Paul puts his hands on him and heals him. Or the multitudes that are crowding around, around him. Uh, some of the pagans wanted to make animal sacrifices when they saw the miracles of Paul. And Paul had to run out into the crowd to stop. Don't do this. This was a man who could heal others um, and yet couldn't heal himself. God wouldn't permit it. He prayed about it. What does he say there? Verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So Paul, whatever that thorn in the flesh was, he prayed, Lord God, I pray that you might heal me of this, or I pray that you might take this away from me if it be opposition. Lord, I just pray that you would remove this thorn from me, Lord, that you might show me mercy, show me grace. And he gets no answer. So he does what you and I do, and he prays again later. Maybe it was the next day. And he prays again the next morning, Lord, I pray that you would please remove this from me. Looks out for an answer, like Elijah looking for a cloud on the horizon, no answer, maybe weeks go by. He prays again. We don't know the time, Paul doesn't tell us that. But he third time prays, Lord, please, I beg of you that you might show me mercy and take this from me. Remove this thorn from my flesh. And finally the answer comes to him. And the answer, boys and girls, is no. God says no. Paul tells us in verse 9, And he, God, the Lord, Jesus, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. So he asks for healing. And God says no. Now there are large segments of Bible believing Christians that need to hear that. Because they believe that to live the Christian life should exempt you from suffering, from physical ailments and stuff like that. And I don't think there's anyone more sanctified in the church today than the Apostle Paul was back then. I don't think anybody had a better prayer life or had larger faith than Paul himself. So you can't blame it on a lack of faith. God heard him. God answered him. But in this case, he said no. And he had good reason. (coughs) Because he had... Better things for Paul than physical healing. You know, sometimes God does glorify himself in physical healing. People get sick and we pray for them and they get better. And we glorify God and we thank God for those healings. But God is, that is not the only way God is glorified. God does not just show his power in giving us strength and healing us of our weakness. Sometimes God shows us his power in the weakness. And that's what Paul is saying that the Lord was teaching him. My power, in this case, will not be perfected in healing you, Paul. My power will be perfected in leaving you 
in this weakness, in leaving you under this spiritual or physical affliction, whatever it may be, I will not affirmatively answer your request. The answer is no. Because I have better things for you, Paul. You will be of greater use to me by my saying no. You will be greater use to the church, greater use to the cause of missions that I'm about to send you on if I leave you under this affliction. (coughs) And a mature, well-orbed Christianity understands that and makes us very careful not to judge people who are under various afflictions and have prayed a long time and the prayer for them is not answered affirmatively. God does answer at times no or sometimes not yet, even when we request multiple times as Paul did. This is a common theme uh, in, in the New Testament. Once you see this theme in Paul's writings, you see it in a lot of places. Paul talks about Christ being crucified in weakness, raised in power. This idea of weakness and power is common in Pauline theology, and it needs to be, it needs to be something in your theology. Weakness and power. Christ crucified. Weakness. Christ raised from the dead. Power. You take up your cross and follow after him. Weakness. You suffer. Weakness. You deny yourself. Weakness. And let the power of Christ who raised him from the dead work in you as you take up your cross, as you deny yourself. (coughs) That the power of God works in you and through you for the glory of God. Paul put it this way in Philippians, that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, weakness, and the power of his resurrection, glory, power. It's both and. The trouble with some of our charismatic friends and brethren, and I consider them my friends and brethren, the trouble with some of our charismatic friends and brethren is they overrealize the eschatology of the world of glory and they import it to the here and now. That what we will have in glory, we should also have here and now. Because Christ is exalted, they say, so too should we in this life. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Yes, Christ is exalted. Yes, Christ has all power and authority. Yes, Christ has dominion over all the earth, over all creation, over Satan himself. But you are following Jesus in the way that he went. And Jesus did not come into this world and immediately go up into glory to take his throne. He had to go by way of humiliation, the way of the cross, the way of death, and then to his throne. And what the Bible teaches is that that is the same path which you and I have to travel in this life in this veil of tears, in this sin-cursed world. We take up our cross and we follow the way of Jesus. The straight and narrow path, the way of weakness sometimes, the way of self-denial, the way of crucifying ourselves with Christ, dying with Christ, being dead dead with Christ to this world, to the flesh, to the devil, that we might know the power of his resurrection, that we would say and feel the weakness, we would confess that weakness before God, And God would supply our needs. God would supply our wants. God would supply all that you have need of to live for him in a way that would bear fruit. I know some of you have probably been praying for things in your life. 
And God does not seem to be affirmatively answering those prayers. And you are left in a state of weakness. And my encouragement to you is it may be that God has left you there so that you would bear more fruit for him, that you would be more productive as a Christian, that you would be uh, a, a better witness to the world. That you would be a more effective evangelist. That people would be saved. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> when you get to glory to realize that the weaknesses, whatever the weaknesses, whatever the crosses that you have had to bear in this life, and God gives us different crosses. Everybody gets crosses, but everybody gets different crosses. The crosses that God has laid on your shoulders in the, in the providence and the economy of God because you were made weak, and Christ was working in you and through you through that weakness, it is going to lead to the salvation of many people in glory. And it is only from the perspective of heaven and eternity and glory that you will look back and you will say, how wise is our God? That he would use a vessel like me in all my weaknesses and he would leave me in those weaknesses so that I would trust not in myself but in him and that by trusting in him, I would lead a whole train of other people to Jesus Christ. And leave a legacy for Christ that extends well beyond my own life. How much greater is that kind of legacy than having a legacy where God affirmatively answered every request that you ever had. And that you never knew anything of the weakness of Christ. <coughs> it's some, of the, some of the weakest Christians are the people who have never known the weakness of following Jesus Christ. The weakness that comes with taking up your cross. You know, uh, I think it was again one of the old Puritans used to say that you know, when you have a large family and many kids, who gets fed first? It's often the baby. And the more mature you are, the more you have to wait. And so it is in the Christian life. that uh, The more maturity you seek and the more maturity that you have and possess so far in Jesus Christ may mean the more weakness you're going to have to feel. You're going to have to wait for your prayers to be affirmatively answered. The babes need to be taken care of first. So think about that. Next time you're watching... Uh, those evangelists on TV who maybe are trying to persuade you that you don't have enough faith. And that's because of your lack of faith that you're in the condition you're in. That may not be the case at all. In fact, if you're a maturing Christian, it probably isn't the case. Well, let me close. Paul did not want to boast. He did this out of necessity. And how that contrasts with what we often see today in evangelicalism. Never did he speak about this rapture anywhere else. He gives the glory to Christ in his conversion. That's what he spoke of, the cross. He spoke of the work of changing him. And that is what we preach here too. We're not going to boast in strange revelations apart from the scriptures here. We're going to preach Christ and him crucified. And if you are here today and you're not a Christian... Let me offer you what the Apostle Paul really wants you to hear about. And that is about Jesus Christ. And what he did for Paul is the same what he can do for you. He can change your life, turn you away from sin, 
and a road that leads to death and destruction, to a faith in him who saves to the utmost. If you will but repent of your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, confess those sins, forsake them, and trust and lay hold of Christ by faith, the Bible says you'll be forgiven and that you'll come to know one day when you die of this great glory that was revealed to Paul of which he could not speak. Let's pray.